This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for February 3rd, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. We're going to talk today about COVID-19 vaccines, and we're joined by someone who is one of the people in the United States responsible for getting vaccines to the population. Ralph Northam has been the governor of Virginia for the past three years. He began serving in the Virginia Senate in 2008 and was elected lieutenant governor in 2013. But politics is actually a second career for him. He is a pediatric neurologist. He served as an army doctor and then practiced in Virginia, taught medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School. And he's now, according to his hospital website, on a leave of absence while he fulfills his responsibilities as governor. So thank you for joining us today, Governor Northam. Before we get to distribution, though, let's look at the latest vaccine development news. This past week, three companies released press releases or published studies about the results of clinical trials of their vaccines. What did we learn there? Steve, as you said, two of these were only press releases, so we haven't had a chance to see the underlying data. So I want to be cautious about any interpretation at this point. But the three trials looked at three new vaccines that we haven't seen efficacy data before. Two from Janssen and Russia are adenoviral vector vaccines. This strategy of delivering the vaccine antigen is shared by other vaccines that are already being used, including one that's a collaboration between Oxford and AstraZeneca, and a vaccine from CanSino, which has been used in the military in China. None of these are approved yet in the US though, and the AstraZeneca vaccine is currently going late stage testing here, so we will have results from that vaccine. The Janssen vaccine, which was tested here, is based on an adenovirus 26 vector, one which doesn't commonly circulate. So there's a limited amount of pre-existing immunity. And that means that it's more likely that the vaccine will take. There won't be an immune response to the vector itself. The very unusual part of this trial is that the vaccine was given as a single dose rather than the traditional prime and boost strategy. This, of course, would make it far easier to deliver to the broader population vaccine was studied in the US or Latin America and South Africa. The Russian vaccine is actually a similar, but instead of using a signal adenoviral vector, it uses two. So in this trial, participants first receive an ad 26 vectored vaccine and then get boosted with an ad 5 vectored vaccine. This study was done entirely in Russia and the Nova vaccine uses a more traditional approach that we haven't really seen in other vaccines yet, and that is using a purified viral spike glycoprotein that's the same antigen the others use, but this time as a purified protein. And that's presented in a lipid nanoparticle. Like most other COVID-19 vaccines, it's administered as two doses given three weeks apart. And the Novavax trial was done in the UK and South Africa. There are trials in other countries that are ongoing, including the US. And the results, well, it depended on where you were. The Nova vaccine was almost 90% efficacious in Britain. The Russian vaccine was over 90% efficacious. Remember, it was tested only in Russia. And the Janssen vaccine was over 70% efficacious in the US. However, for the two vaccines that were tested in South Africa, these numbers fell dramatically. The Janssen vaccine fell to 57%, while the Nova vaccine was less than 50% efficacious. So what's this mean? We'll know a lot more once we see all the data. But as we've discussed before, the strain that's now become dominant in South Africa has many amino acid changes in the spike glycoprotein relative to the antigen that was used to construct all of these vaccines. 
And we're starting to hear reports that antibodies induced by prior infection or by vaccination might bind less well to this variant protein. So unfortunately, these studies seem to suggest that the in vitro studies might correlate with lower efficacy of some vaccines. Eric, you covered a lot of ground. And I think there are a couple of aspects worth highlighting for our audience. When we think of the viral vectored, such as the J&J with the AD26 and the Sputnik V with the AD26 and AD5, you raise the issue of vector immunity. And that's an important parameter that we have to monitor is does the delivery system itself impact the immunity elicited? And that is something we'll have to monitor. Prior studies, some of which I was part of, suggest that with AD26, that may be less of an issue than with AD5. But that is separate from the delivery of the insert or the immunogen to elicit the immune response against the SARS-CoV-2 or the pathogen. And then the issue of the emerging variants, which are emerging around the world, not just in England or South Africa or Brazil, it's occurring here in the US and elsewhere. And the significance of these variants on immunologic escape from the vaccines is something we will need to closely monitor. And whether the neutralizing titer is the correlate of immunity or protection that we need to pay the most attention to, or there are other aspects of the immune system still have to be elucidated, but it does raise concern. And we will eventually chat with you, Governor Northam, and you can see how our heads are spinning with emerging data with the Sputnik V just being reported yesterday in a peer-reviewed publication. And we are all responding to new data that influence how we think about this. And I can only imagine the challenges from where you sit as you think about proper policies. So in fact, let's look at the vaccines that are currently available in the United States and how they're being used in today's context. Governor Northam, what's the current state of the epidemic in Virginia? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me with you. And I hope your listeners are all staying safe and healthy. And, you know, it's so important, especially with these new vaccines potentially coming online soon, to look at the data. And and then to your point, we don't have that data to look at yet. So there's going to be an education process moving forward. And I just thank you all for being part of that solution as we move forward and really try to put this pandemic in our rearview mirror. Uh, you, You mentioned that I was in the Army serving as a physician. And this has been like fighting a biological war. Our first case in Virginia was on March the 7th. If people remember back, it's been almost a year ago. We didn't have the PPE. We had difficulty with our testing capabilities, sending what few tests we had down to the CDC in Atlanta with a turnaround time sometime of two weeks. Our numbers right now are trending down, which we are very pleased with. Our positivity rate is close to 10%. It had been up over 20%. So we're heading in a good direction there. Our hospitalizations are down. We had just under 3,000 new cases today. So the the virus is still alive and well. But we're confident that if Virginians, in our case, are able to continue following the guidelines of wearing masks, social distancing, keeping their hands clean. And as we roll out this vaccination process, we've had over a half a million individuals in Virginia that have been infected with COVID. Uh, I'm one of them. And we've given now close to a million doses of the vaccine, both Pfizer and Moderna. So we anticipate the numbers trending down and hopefully being able to get back to our near normal, putting this uh, pandemic in the rearview mirror. 
who's eligible today for vaccination in Virginia? Are you sticking strictly to the CDC guidelines or are you modifying them a bit as many states have done? For the most part, we've followed the CDC guidelines. Obviously, you know, all of us know who is the most vulnerable population and certainly our frontline workers, health care providers. So they've been in what we call 1A. Uh, we've done a nice job getting vaccines into their arms. Also, our long-term care facilities, uh, we know that you know, these individuals are very vulnerable. So right now, uh, we're still completing 1A, which is our hospital workers, providers, and our long-term care facilities, both residents and employees. Also now reaching out to those 65 and older, uh, those that have uh, underlying medical conditions such as diabetes, uh, respiratory illnesses, those types of things. And then our teachers, our first responders, and then our essential workers. So we have a population in Virginia of about 8.5 million. Uh, so about 3.5 to 4 million individuals are eligible for the vaccine. And it's very much supply dependent at this stage. We've got a great partner in Washington now. Our president is committed uh, to making sure we get this vaccine out. So things are headed in a good direction, but certainly supply dependent at this stage. Logistics of getting the vaccine out, though, have been up to the states and likely are to largely will continue to be up to the states. And the public health systems weren't built for massive delivery of products to people. So what have you learned in this process so far? Oh, it's a great question. And it has been a, a logistical challenge, not just for Virginia, but all of the states. And really one of the things that hampered our distribution you know, prior to uh, January 20th, when we had a new president, the eligibility was expanded by the prior administration, saying that the stockpiles were going to be released. And then two days later, after we said, OK, come on in and get your vaccine, they said, well, there are no stockpiles. And so uh, the mixed messages have been challenging. But now we know how much we're going to get each week for the next few weeks, which is very important. Pharmacies will now be able to distribute uh, vaccinations as well. So the message coming out of Washington has been solid. The support is solid. Uh, the resources coming out of Washington are going to be very helpful. So uh, logistically, it has been a challenge. But you know, right now, we have the system in place, whether it be large sites or the pharmacies or going into communities, into lesser served populations. That system is in place. And the faster they can get supply to us, uh, the better we'll be. We're getting about 120,000 doses a week in order to get up to 50,000 doses a day, uh, which is what we'd like to do in order to get people vaccinated by the summertime. We need about 350,000 doses per week. And so we look forward to ramping that up as soon as we can. Governor, uh, along those lines, I think that we have an incredible national experiment where we have a federal government and 50 states all of which can innovate to figure out how to do it better for their communities. And I look at the rollout over the last year, and as you mentioned, uh, the administration's changed, so there are different parameters that are in play the last week or two. But how do we get the balance right between what the federal government should do, should they be procuring so the states aren't competing, versus what the states should do, because you have local knowledge uh, of what's best for your communities. Do we have that balance right? And are there things we can do to improve that balance? I think every day we're getting better. Obviously, to have a solid message uh, coming out of Washington, a commitment to the people of, of this country that, that we're gonna make this a top priority, 
uh, is very important. But to your point, you know, one size doesn't fit all. Uh, and that's true for different areas of, of Virginia. I mean, we have some very rural areas and then obviously metropolitan areas. And so our health department is overseeing this project uh, in Virginia. And then we have about 40 local health departments that are working, you know, under their uh, supervision. And so it's been a learning process. I mentioned earlier, we've been fighting a biological war, essentially with, with no supplies and, and no support. And so governors, uh, to your point, uh, have had to learn how to do this uh, on our own. And, and that's where we are now. Uh, we accept that. But again, to get the support from Washington will be very helpful moving forward. So we hope that something new is going to be added to that mix. Eric was describing the new vaccines that are on the horizon, and they have different characteristics. As he said, some are easier to administer. Some, like the single-shot Janssen vaccine, doesn't require freezer storage, but some of them might be less efficacious than the ones that we're currently using. So from a public policy standpoint, how do you weigh those differences? Well, you know, there are a couple of different ways I would look at that. First of all, I have taken upon myself, as you probably can imagine, I've participated in a number of clinical trials, so I know how to interpret the data, and we'll certainly look at that data closely with the new vaccines. I have responded, you know, as far as the Moderna and Pfizer, people say, which one, you know, should I get, Governor or Dr. Northam? I'd say the best vaccination for you to get is the one you get. So hopefully, if the new vaccines are safe and effective, uh, we'll be able to take that same approach. So again, it's so much supply dependent now. Um, We have the system in place. And so the more doses we can get into Virginia, the better. And I might add, uh, you know, we talked about some of the logistical challenges. One of the largest challenges right now and something that I'm very focused on is, is equity. And we went through this with testing. There was obviously a trust issue that we were able to work on and overcome working with local leaders and also our faith leaders. But we're facing that same thing with the vaccination program. And so to have new vaccines, I think people have gotten comfortable, if you will, with the Moderna and Pfizer. And so that education process needs to move forward. And we need to let, you know, everybody in Virginia and this country know that if it's appropriate, uh, if the vaccination is safe and effective, that's certainly a process that we need to pay a lot of attention to moving forward. That's a really important point. You've touched on a couple of different things earlier and now. One is having access to vaccines so that communities that don't have so many resources are able to go locally in their own communities to get vaccinated. And the other is simply convincing people that it's a good idea. And that's both in minority communities and in all other communities, in fact. On that latter point, What kind of success do you think you're having? I think the success has been good. We've had a number of press conferences where I've stood up both as a governor and a doctor. And given the facts, uh, you know, Americans, they do okay and they want the truth. Um, And this obviously was a challenge in the months past from some of our folks in Washington. But, you know, to be able to talk about the facts, to talk about the data that this is safe, effective, to let community leaders, faith leaders present that message it's gone well. So we learned a lot, Eric, during the testing. Initially, a lot of folks, they didn't even trust being tested. And we overcame that. And I think we're making good progress with the vaccination as well. Along those lines, I know you were infected yourself. Have you been vaccinated? I haven't. I'm in 1B. 
as is my wife. We're a little bit less than 65, so we fall into a category where we're not eligible yet. And I'm okay with that, but I will tell you, as soon as my number comes up, I'm going to be one of the first in line to get my vaccination. I was able to donate my plasma, uh, which I felt good about, and I will probably do that again. Uh, But I do have antibodies and hopefully can help other folks that are infected with COVID. Many state governments have been criticized for the logistics of distribution of the vaccines. Of course, if distribution were better, it would make it even clearer that the supply is limited and governors generally can't do much about manufacturing. So given all that, what do you tell your constituents? Well, I tell them, first of all, that this has been a major undertaking, just a massive program and rollout. And I think the challenges that we had initially, we had very limited supplies. And so our hospital systems and our pharmacies were actually holding on to doses to use for second doses. And that's certainly understandable. But once we saw what was happening and once we were assured that we would have more supply coming in on a weekly basis, we worked with our pharmacies, we worked with our healthcare systems to say, you know, let's go ahead and not hold those second doses and use them for first doses. So we really narrowed the gap between the numerator and denominator, and we've been able to get a lot more shots into arms. Uh, Virginia's close to the top 10 now for how many doses were given and percentage of our population. So things are moving forward, but this has been a major undertaking. And so while I understand people are impatient. They see the urgency in wanting to get the vaccination. I've asked them to please work with us and be patient. And also remember that there are a number of individuals that are vulnerable, that are at risk. And we certainly want to make sure that we get to those populations. And so I ask people to keep their place in line. And for the most part, it's worked well. Virginia gets it. And overall, they've done a good job handling this pandemic. Do you have adequate testing? And if not, what should we be doing to enhance testing? Because I worry that we're not taking full advantage of our public health interventions because we're not using all our tools. Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say we never have enough testing, but we've come such a long way. We only had limited testing back in March. We're testing right now in Virginia on average about 30,000 individuals with the PCR Obviously, other individuals are using antigen testing. So it's not perfect, but it's much better than it has been. And I don't know that it's going to improve a whole lot. I mean, we can always continue to help with the supplies and encourage people to be tested. But I really think most of our focus moving forward is getting shots in people's arms. I think that's really where the rubber meets the road. Dr. Northam, you frame it as a bio war, which I think we are in a bio war against this pathogen. And what gets challenging, as we've already been discussing, is the speed with which new information's emerging, which I would say confuses us, and we're probably more knowledgeable than most about what's going on. One of the big concerns is how we message the changing information, because when the information changes, that confuses different communities, and that plays into vaccine hesitancy or suspicion or concern. What should we be doing to try to manage the fact that we don't have all the answers, we're learning new information, yet we do know some things that matter and how to get our communities to trust that? It's a great question. And this is one of the reasons I appreciate so much what you and your colleagues are doing. And that is to know the facts, first of all, and then provide those facts and provide the truth to uh, American people. And 
this is what has been so challenging. And I know this is probably not a good idea to talk politics, but it became politically divisive uh, early on in the pandemic. And that was very frustrating for people like me, but a president that talked about using disinfectants, uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, talking about using ultraviolet lighting. Those mixed messages, I think, were very harmful to this entire process. And then, you know, we talk about facts and we know about following science. We know that wearing a facial protection and not gathering in large groups, talking about how this is aerosolized, how it's spread, those are just basic facts, but they became politicized. And perhaps half of our population in the country said, I'm not going to follow those guidelines. And so that was very frustrating. Obviously, the testing, not having the PPE that we needed, We've learned so much, but I'm a glass is half full person. If one looks at where we are today and where we were back in February and March of 2020, we have come a long way. And I think with new leadership in Washington, because the messaging, the presentation of facts, the telling truth to our fellow Americans, and in my case, fellow Virginians, that's how we conquer this pandemic. And so while you can't completely turn the ship around overnight, I think we're heading in a much better direction. I think there's a larger trust out there in the community. And if we can get the supply working with these pharmaceutical companies, I really think that we can get this pandemic behind us and get back to our near normal lives. As you know, I'm a pediatric neurologist. Our children have suffered. Our families have suffered. Businesses have suffered. So there's a lot of work we need to do to get this country back on its feet and move forward. But I think we're headed in a good direction. I agree. Following the science, you know, understanding the facts are critical, even if we don't like them. Since we have you, I will take the liberty of getting your advice. What can we do better as a medical journal, as academics, to help the discussion to get it a little bit better for our community to understand? Well, that's a great question. And first of all, thanks for all you all do. I've practiced medicine for over 30 years in New England Journal of Medicine. We just really just thank you all for all that you do. But I think that we can continue to provide the facts and also help to interpret the data because it can be challenging. But I think the other thing that I've learned as governor and obviously as a physician is to listen. And if you listen to your listeners in this case or your viewers, And, you know, what's on their minds? What are they worried about? What are the challenges that they see in their communities? I really think that goes a long way. And so, you know, the more we listen, as you know, the more we learn and the more we know, the more we can do. And that's the way I've always approached things. And I think from your perspective, that's probably a good direction to take as well. Finally, Governor, you're in the unusual position of being a physician who's leading a state during a public health crisis. So how has that shaped your perspective and how has that determined how you're governing? Well, I think being a physician has helped in a lot of ways. Um, The timing of this, I'm the only governor who is a physician. And so serving in the United States Army, uh, I served during Desert Storm. Uh, It was a very busy time, a very challenging time logistically supplies. I mean, you could go right down the list. So I think that was helpful to have that experience. And also, I think we as physicians are used to being in the trenches and working long hours. And this has been a trying time for this country, really for this world. But our staff, people working in the hospitals, this has just been going on and on and people are exhausted. And so, you know, I think that background has helped in learning how to pace ourselves and take care of our bodies, take care of our families, 
has been helpful. But I think the most important thing for me as governor and having experience as a physician is being a listener and being able to kind of sense the trauma and the discomfort that people are going through during this process and then having the empathy and then making sure that people know that I care about them and that I'm doing everything that I can to keep them healthy, keep them safe. So, you know, I think the overall training and experience of being a healthcare provider has really put me in a good position. I won't say that everybody agrees with all that I do, but I get up in the morning and do everything that I can to deal with this pandemic and a lot of other issues that are going on right now as well. But I think the background has helped me. Well, Governor Northam, I think that Virginia is very lucky to have you at this time of crisis. To have someone with expertise is so unusual, oftentimes in government, but particularly now. So thank you for doing it. And thank you very much for joining us today. I just am grateful for all that you do, Governor Northam, and for taking the time to talk with us and the medical community that we're trying to serve. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Governor Northam, for joining us today. And as usual, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.